Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, December 24th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter, at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Now, I never turn down an opportunity to talk to an astronaut, and especially not one with which I feel a really, uh, well, as far as astronauts go, a tight connection. This particular astronaut is Canadian. He was selected at the same time as Julie Payette, who was the astronaut for which the scholarship that put me through grad school was named. And his wife even flew out of the airport where my dad learned to fly. So I had a great time reading his memoir, Defying Limits, Lessons from the Edge of the Universe. Dr. Dave Williams is not only an astronaut, and he's not only Canadian, but he is also a physician and a neuroscientist, and now the CEO of a hospital. Oh, and also he spent a bunch of time underwater doing missions too, but we didn't even get a chance to talk about that. And before you think to yourself, oh, here's another interview with a kind of superhero that seems untouchable, Dave is exactly the opposite of that. Because in his book, he details the the fact that for him, failures have been just as important, in fact, if not more important, than successes. And he is very honest about how circuitous the route for him to get to space was. So let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Dr. Dave Williams. Dave Williams, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thrilled to be here. It's such a pleasure for me in particular to have you on the show, uh, because as a Canadian girl growing up just uh, in Toronto, you know, we we followed your <laughs> uh, journey as it was coming online, and, and so it's a real thrill for me. Well, I'm really excited to be here, be able to share the story, and it's been an amazing journey. So I want to start actually from the beginning, uh, because you describe your upbringing so beautifully in your book and kind of the seeds that were planted by your parents that that had such an influence later on in, in terms of uh, your career. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and, and what that atmosphere was like. 
I grew up on the West Island of Montreal in a place called Beaconsfield. And uh, at the time that I was a child, that was a, a growing suburban community. So I actually had a farm right next to uh, the development that we were in when I was very young. We used to go over to the farm and go horseback riding. And then as I grew up, the whole area grew up. But it was really quite remarkable being able to go out and spend basically most of the summer exploring the woods right by our house. Yeah. And you talk about how, you know, you you had to entertain yourselves and, and that kind of led you to sort of develop some resilience and some independence and that your parents didn't didn't worry so much if you came home with a couple of scrapes and bruises. You know, it was a totally different era. And it's now that I'm a parent and I look back at the courage that my parents must have had to basically let us go out and do our own thing most of the time. And it was truly an opportunity to learn about uh, how to do things, how to be resilient, uh, having challenges, you know, falling off your bike and getting all those scrapes. But more importantly, how to go out and explore in the woods. And uh, we'd take cans of beans with us and make a little campfire and uh, cook the beans over the campfire and things. It was truly a remarkable experience. I liken it in many ways to one of my favorite books, Tom Sawyer. These days, uh, that obviously, as you as you mentioned, is is not a common experience for most kids. Although I'm sure there are still many in in rural areas that that have a similar experience. And and so one of the differences I see, you know, in my kids as they're going to grow up, um, compared with how I grew up, is that we don't really give them a chance to be bored. And you know, I think that in in your book, you talk a lot about sort of consciousness and the kind of ways in which your life can be changed in two minutes and, you know, looking back on, on the earth and, and sort of this kind of passage of time. Um, so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about what you think, you know, in terms of the differences between how you grew up and now how you're raising your kids and, and how that relates to the importance of being able to just get bored? You know, I think one of the things that uh, both of my parents did was foster a sense of curiosity and basically enable us to pursue whatever was the dream of the moment. And of course, we all have many different dreams and those dreams change over time. But uh, I think my parents were very good about uh, engaging with us and trying to encourage us to uh, learn about different things, whether it was a chemistry set that I got for Christmas or an electronics set or just simply a huge cardboard box that we cut up into little pieces and made imaginary things out of. It was that sense of curiosity that I think was really important that uh, both of my parents helped me develop. And now as a parent myself, we try and encourage the same thing in our own kids. And of course, there's many more devices and distractions and electronic uh, uh, things that kids can use these days to uh, pursue their dreams. But I think fundamentally, we need to figure out how we can encourage kids to be curious and whether it's now with Lego robotics and other devices like that, that they can help build and that we can interact with them when we're uh, when they're building it. That's really uh, creating those moments that last a lifetime. Both you and your wife, Kathy, have achieved pipe dreams for a lot of us. I mean, there are a lot of people who want to be astronauts. There are a lot of people who want to be commercial pilots, as your wife is. And, you know, you achieved that. So how do you how do you sort of talk to your kids and, you know, other kids that talk to you about the fact that, you know, this, this, this kind of pipe dream is probably not going to happen for the majority of them. And yet, in order to have any kind of chance, you have to kind of doggedly pursue it in a sense. 
Yeah, I think it's that doggedly pursuing it that really makes a big difference. Anything that's worthwhile doing is not easy to do. It requires a lot of hard work. And, uh, you know, with all of our kids, what we try and encourage them to do is find an area that they're really passionate about, something that they love doing, because in that case, then working hard at it is not necessarily as difficult as it would be working hard at something that you really don't like doing. So whatever that uh, passion may be, to go for it with literally everything they have at that moment and then it's amazing what doors can open up you know my career has not been uh, not been a linear uh, path by any stretch of the imagination my wife uh, Kathy her career has been much more linear because she became a commercial uh, pilot and then got on with Air Canada has been with Air Canada that whole time but I started out as a neuroscientist became a physician worked as a physician for a while then became an astronaut and had amazing experiences doing that but then ultimately became a hospital CEO. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that journey, because I think that it can really help give people hope who have a dream. uh, And you know, for for whom the obstacles seem insurmountable, because there were definitely times in your life, as you describe them in the book, where it just didn't seem that you were ever going to become an astronaut. (laughs) more than one or two moments. You know, I, I think one of the messages and one of the real reasons why I wrote the book is to share the important message of resilience. And it's what we do when we don't succeed that determines whether we will succeed. And as you know from reading through my book, I had more than one situation where I did not succeed first time around, and it was really, really tough. But those are the times when we have to reflect on what our real goal is and regroup, learn from the lessons that we had when we did not succeed and figure out a path to be able to move forward and succeed. And uh, I think that um, that's a message that could be shared with anyone in any walk of life. And hopefully, you know, somebody listening to the podcast today will take from this that they can take on the challenges that they're facing and work through them and with resilience and persistence and a bit of passion. It's amazing what can happen. Yeah, so I want to actually give people some details. Tell us about uh, your oral exams when you were doing graduate work in physiology. Yes. Well, thanks for bringing that up. Um, That (laughs) was an interesting challenge. But, you know, in all sincerity, I included that in the book because often people think that, you know, astronauts are uniformly successful at everything they do. And in fact, uh, based on my experiences, most astronauts that I know are just really, really hard workers and they're willing to persist where others might, in fact, give up. So I was in graduate school at McGill University and I had started a PhD program. But at the end of the first year, you have to do an oral um, exam based on the research that you've been doing to determine whether you're going to go into the PhD stream or whether you'll finish a master's degree. And that did not go well. I did not pass that uh, oral examination. I was devastated um, when I found out that I didn't pass it because I'd worked very hard as an undergraduate to try and get into graduate school and finally prove that I was academically competent at being able to do these things. So that required a lot of self-reflection and what I could learn from that experience, uh, to be honest with you, made me quite frustrated and a little bit uh, angry in the sense that, well, I'm going to show, you know, the the professors that I actually can study physiology and that I can do well. So there was one comprehensive exam remaining, and that was a comprehensive exam in all aspects of physiology. And I did that exam and came out at the top of all the PhD students and all the master's students. And uh, uh, that single performance really changed my life because from there I was able to get into medical school and graduated at the top of my class in medical school as well. 
it's, it's a great story. And I think for a lot of people who are struggling to find themselves during their undergraduate years, they can take a lot of optimism, you know, a, a lot of kind of hope from your story, because it's not like you, you know, nailed every class from the minute you got to university, which, you know, I think a lot of a lot of kids now in elementary school, middle school, uh, high school, are kind of taught that if they don't succeed at every turn, you know, doors are going to be closing for them. And one of the things I love about your story is that, you know, it shows that that's not the case. You have the opportunity to turn things around, um, even as seemingly late as graduate school, which for I think a lot of people who are in, you know, undergrad, that seems like already too late. You know, it's interesting that perception of time, because I agree with you, many uh, people in university would think of that as being too late. But in fact, we can always turn things around. Doesn't matter where we are in our educational activities, where we are in life, we can always turn things around. And what I learned is I actually made things a little bit more difficult for myself than they needed to be. And there's no question that if uh, one does well in high school then and one does well in university, that makes for a relatively smooth sailing. And even then, it's very competitive getting into the programs that one wants to get into. But the other challenge in all this is that I think learning to fail was very helpful for me because I, after I had learned how to fail and how to recover from failure, I think I became more resilient. And I'm not suggesting that people go out and intentionally try and fail. That would be absolutely crazy. But what I'm suggesting is if we push ourselves to the limits of our own personal envelopes, if we're really trying hard at something that's difficult to do, we're going to fail by definition because we're pushing and challenging ourselves. And that's how we can learn from those situations to get even better and be able to push ourselves harder and uh, to achieve the types of dreams that we want to achieve. And that kind of psychological approach might have been something that set you apart from some of the competitors for the coveted four uh, Canadian astronaut spots that ultimately, um, you know, one of which you won. Uh, you know, as I, as I was reading sort of your description of, of kind of the, the field of competition and, and how, you know, all, the, all these very highly successful people were, were vying for these um, the small number of spots, it made me wonder if the fact that you could be slightly, I don't know, let, I, I mean, maybe, well, you should describe with your own words. How did you feel in that moment? Um, because the way it sounds in your book, it sounds like you weren't, you, it, you were competing against yourself and that you weren't sort of undercutting others. Yeah, it was a very interesting competition. You know, we started out with over 5,000 applicants. And uh, it, it, every time that we went to the next stage, I was a little bit surprised and shocked that I made it to the next stage. And uh, certainly when we were there with the group of the 20 finalists, I think they could have hired any one of the 20 finalists and they would have done a great job as astronauts. What I found, though, because that was such a competitive environment, and it was so easy to get caught up in the competition, I reverted back to the lessons that I'd learned from graduate school, medical school, that really what I want to do is compete with myself. As long as I understand what the desired outcome is and what uh, a successful outcome looks like, then I can push myself internally to be able to achieve that outcome. Uh, a great analogy would be when I fly an airplane, you know, there's altitudes that we're assigned to fly at, and we're supposed to be on the altitude plus or minus 100 feet. Well, 
many, many pilots love pushing themselves to achieve a much better performance than that. They challenge themselves to say plus or minus 10 feet. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things that I learned as an undergraduate and as a medical student that helped me in the selection for the astronaut. I just strove to be the best person that I could be. I couldn't change myself the last minute or anything like that. And I actually felt a lot of security in just being able to go forward and be who I was. Yeah, I thought it was really um, telling when you describe sort of your reaction to the treadmill test. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about uh, that moment in the training? Or I guess the I guess it, it was still part of the competition. Yeah, so this is part of the astronaut selection. And um, we do a number of things to make sure that people are medically fit, because of course, you don't want to hire somebody into the program and then find out that they have a significant medical challenge that would preclude them from becoming a pilot or whatever. So they have a treadmill test, which is there not as an exercise fitness test, but it's there as a screening tool to detect any abnormal heart rhythms or uh, problems with cardiac function. And, you know, I was well acquainted to this as a physician and so with the group that I was in, I sort of shared with the group ahead of time, you know, we're going to do the treadmill and uh, you want to make sure you don't have any caffeine or anything like that ahead of time and just basically get on the treadmill, do what they ask you to do and get off the treadmill because, you know, the longer you stay on, the greater the risk is that you're going to have an abnormal heartbeat or something that gets their attention. So some people kind of listened to that and said, oh, that makes sense. And other people said, no, no, you know, he's trying to game us out and psych us out on this. And it really is competitive to see who's going to stay on the longest. And of course, there was one individual they almost had to carry off the treadmill. But uh, it's a great example of how if we use others and compete against others, we can kind of drive ourselves crazy at times. Yeah. So this selection process happened after you've al- you'd already been um, enjoying a successful career as, a, as an emergency physician. So what was that like when you sort of like had, you had already reached uh, a goal that for a lot of people you know, is their main goal uh, throughout their career. And to then turn around and say, I'm going to do something that is also incredibly, even more so, much more so uh, difficult to be selected for, but that I'm going to leave this thing that I've achieved in order to do this thing that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be successful at. You know, it's a great question because I was the director of the Department of Emergency Services at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto at the time that I was selected. And I was 38, you know, so in terms of people who get selected to be astronauts, there's no real age limit, but certainly I was one of the older candidates that had applied. And I looked at this as though I had the best of both worlds. You know, I I was doing something that I loved doing. I loved being an emergency physician. It was incredible. It enabled me to work with paramedics and, uh, Uh, ride out with air ambulance attendants and helicopters and things. It was just a a dream come true. But being an astronaut allowed me to not only practice medicine, but to do it in space, to be a researcher, to actually fly high-performance jets, to be able to learn about skydiving and living and working underwater. So the astronaut career really enabled me to combine everything that I love doing. So I was happy if I stayed as a physician, but I was thrilled to become an astronaut and be able to do everything that I love doing wrapped up all in one career. And so, you know, as an astronaut, as you go through the training, there's still not a guarantee that you're ever going to get into space, right? There's still a lot of hurdles that you have to sort of jump through, um, including being chosen for a particular mission. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your attitude and your experience of the training and whether you ever thought, hey, maybe I'll never actually make it into space and, and, and whether it would still have been worth it to go through the training? 
it's always worth it to go through the training. But again, it comes back to your your approach to learning. You know, most astronauts have a lifetime love of learning. And that was something that I learned in medical school as well, is that as a physician, you have to continue learning your whole career. So when I started as an astronaut candidate with NASA in 1995, it was the first time that they'd introduced exams into the astronaut program. So we had exams on uh, all the different space shuttle systems that we were learning. We had had exams and simulators and in the T-38 uh, supersonic jets that we were flying. But that's just part of what we do as doctors. You know, it's it's really a commitment to being your best. So once again, what I tried to do is understand what it is that I'm supposed to learn, what um, other astronauts in the past have learned from these experiences and their recommendations on how I can be the best that I can be. And that's what I tried to do to the best of my ability. I didn't worry about who's going to be picked first or who's going to be assigned to a mission first. As it turns out, I was one of the um, first people in my class selected to fly in space. And that was more so not because I was necessarily brilliant. I think that was more so because of the mission that I was assigned to. It was called NeuroLab and uh, basically leveraged my research background in neuroscience and the crew had to be assigned in 1996 to train for two years. So I was very, very lucky, but I focused solely on being the best person that I could be. And I didn't really worry about what I was going to get selected to do. And that turned out uh, to work out very well for me. What do a South African female DJ, a Wall Street businessman turned mixologist and one of the fastest men alive all have in common? They all dared to push themselves and chase their dreams and make them into their own victories. This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to showcase these amazing stories of personal triumph. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired and celebrate your next victory. Hey, you never know. Maybe next year your story will be featured. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's G-H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y.com to see all 10 stories. So I definitely want to uh, talk a lot about NeuroLab since that's, you know, something that I'm particularly interested in, you know, having, I have a degree in neuroscience. Um, and so that's, it's fascinating to me to hear about um, what it would have been like to conduct that kind of research in space. But first I want to talk about, you know, since you had training in neuroscience and medicine, you know, you going through the training, there are definitely things that simulate the kind of, uh, well, I guess what I've heard referred to as space stupid, you know, where, where you get into into zero gravity or, you know, during the, um, during the trip into space, you know, your brain does not function the way it does uh, on Earth. So can you tell us a little bit about how, what that experience was like for you. So during the training program, they would expose us to as many environments that uh, they could that represented what it would like being in space. So for instance, they would send us for high altitude training. And that was very important flying the T-38s where we wear oxygen masks and have a pressure regulator that helps maintain the amount of oxygen in our blood so we don't lose consciousness. But if the oxygenation uh, delivery system on the airplane fails, we have to recognize that we're becoming hypoxic and then fly down to a lower altitude and 
uh, be able to land as soon as possible. So they put you in a high altitude chamber and uh, they tell you to take your oxygen mask off and they give you a series of cognitive tests to perform. And these things are not very difficult at all. It's something like add eight plus eight, which, you know, is pretty straightforward when we're sitting here just chatting like this. But when you're hypoxic at high altitude, one of the symptoms of hypoxia, it's almost like becoming intoxicated. You you get this sense of euphoria and you look at eight plus eight and you go, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Is it 16 or maybe 61? Or the eight kind of looks like a symbol for infinity and imagine to infinity and beyond. And your brain starts doing all this and then you realize that, you know, this isn't good. I'm hypoxic. I need to put my oxygen back on. So you go through all these different training exercises to get you ready to be able to fly in space. And so did you have those experiences once you were in space that, you know, you kind of felt like you just your your brain wasn't firing on all the same cylinders? You know, they talk about the space stupids, and uh, I'm not totally convinced. You know, being in space, there's no question it is different. And you feel different when you arrive in space, primarily because of all the fluid shifts that take place in the absence of gravity. All the fluid that's normally in your lower extremities and your legs shifts up into your chest and into your face, and you get this really puffy face. So it feels like you're standing on your head, uh, your nose feels congested, and this goes on for the first couple of days. So that gives you a kind of this funny sensation. And then also when you're in space, the timeline is so aggressive that you always have something that you need to be doing. And of course, you want to make sure you don't make any mistakes. So there's a degree of anxiety around that. It really reminded me of my last set of exams in medical school, or when I was doing the comprehensive exam in emergency medicine to become a specialist in emergency medicine, that you're so totally focused and there's this element of fatigue on top of it and you don't want to make a mistake. So all that together creates this fairly dynamic environment that you're working in. So tell us about NeuroLab and what it was that the mission uh, required of you and, and, and what you did. So NeuroLab was an incredible mission. It was celebrating the decade of the brain. So the mission took place in 1998 with the 90s as a decade of the brain. And we had uh, experiments coming from investigators all over the world. And what was really amazing as a crew member is we got to be, metaphorically, the graduate students for the world's best neuroscientists. It was absolutely unbelievable. And we were able to study how the brain and nervous system adapted to being in space, both in crew members. So we were not only the researchers, we were the experimental subjects. But we had rats with us. We had neonatal rats. We had mice, oyster toadfish, crickets, etc. And all of this was to try and understand how the brain and nervous system develop in the absence of gravity and how the brain and nervous system can readapt to being back on Earth. One of the things that we learned, which was really exciting, is that when I trained as a neuroscientist, I was taught that the central nervous system is essentially hardwired. It's like the motherboard of a computer and the connections between the components are relatively static and don't necessarily change. What we discovered on Neurolab is, in fact, the brain is quite plastic, that those connections can change in response to the unusual environment of microgravity. And that was a remarkable finding that we were able to achieve on the mission. So tell us about some of the kind of physical needs that you that you had to do uh, with these animals. I mean, you know, what, what is it like for a rat to be floating around in space? You know, I mean, it must have been, you know, talk, talk to us a little bit about kind of the the details of those experiments. 
Sure. Well, well, let's talk about the uh, the baby rats because these rats uh, flew when they had not yet learned to walk, and they were going to go through what we call the critical window of development. So this specific period in time where rats normally learn how to walk, but they're going to do it in space in the absence of gravity. So the scientific question was: if an animal goes through a, a period of learning how to walk in the absence of gravity, will it be forever a space rat and not be able to walk normally when it comes back to earth or will it readapt and be able to walk normally on earth and if and if that's the case what does that really say about this critical window of development maybe the the window of development's a little wider than we thought or maybe the nervous system's actually able to to learn how to do things differently so it was interesting watching these rats they would push off you know from one part of the uh, glove box which is basically like this big enclosure uh, in the space lab that the animals were in, and we'd have our hands in there with them. And uh, one one rat would be in my left hand, and he'd push off from my left hand, float across, grab onto my right arm, run up to my elbow, and turn around, run halfway down my forearm, leap off, and float across to my left arm. They were playing; it was really incredible. But then when we brought them back from space, it turns out that they were able to learn how to walk in a 1G environment back on Earth or in normal gravity, but they were forever space rats because the writing reflex was permanently impaired. <laughs> so interesting. And so what about the kind of, you know, challenges of of, uh, of being in space and then in, in microgravity and sort of performing tasks like surgery that require, you know, real kind of fine motor movements uh, on your part? What's that like? It was a real challenge. Neurolab, in many cases, was some of the most sophisticated science that we'd ever done in space up to that point. Nowadays, of course, on the space station, we're uh, doing things like gene sequencing, which is really quite incredible. But um, certainly from the perspective of neuroscience and electrophysiology, it was some of the most complex scientific experiments that have ever been done in space. It's tough. You don't want to make a mistake. And uh, some of these research experiments uh, involve complex dissections where we would have to learn how to perform a dissection in the absence of gravity, how to restrain all of our instruments, how to make sure that the animal was restrained. Of course, we were doing surgery, which means the animal survives. And uh, we would give a general anesthetic to the animal, which then we'd have to maintain temperature control and all the other parameters that normally on Earth you have an anesthesiologist to take care of. So we uh, we figured out a way to do all of this, and it was remarkable to see how successful we were in being able to achieve the scientific results of the mission. So in addition to the Neurolab work, you also had to go on some spacewalks. In fact, you hold the record for the longest amount of time walking in space, I believe, uh, for any Canadian astronaut. Is that true? Yes, that's true. And so on Neurolab, Rick Linehan, our payload commander, and I were assigned to be the two spacewalkers. And Rick and I joked with each other, we didn't have any scheduled spacewalk. We would only go outside if something on the space shuttle broke. And on the one hand, you definitely don't want anything to break. But on the other hand, gee, if maybe something really small broke, we'd get a chance to go outside and fix it. Well, that didn't happen. And um, after Neurolab, Rick went on to do a number spacewalks and the Hubble Space Telescope repair missions. And I was very fortunate to get assigned to STS-118, a space station construction flight, where I had to go out and do three spacewalks. I uh, led two of the three spacewalks. And uh, it was a remarkable experience going outside with Rick Mastracchio and Clay Anderson. It was truly incredible. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you know, it, it's it's already amazing to sort of probably see the Earth from space. And then what's it like to sort of be out there? 
You know, it's an interesting uh, experience. There really are no great words to be able to describe how absolutely incredible it is. If you're inside the space shuttle or the space station, imagine that you're in a bus and you're driving, you know, through a city or you're you're looking out the window of a bus at this amazing view of something going by, whatever it might be. And uh, that's kind of what it might be like being in the space shuttle or the space station looking back at the Earth. You're inside a spacecraft. You're inside the space station. It's still amazing. It's an unbelievable experience being in space. But when you go outside, it's like being on a motorcycle passing the bus on the highway. You're in your own space suit and your space suit is your spacecraft. We kind of joke and say, you know, if you develop a problem, you may have the rest of your life to solve the problem. And uh, being outside doing a spacewalk, working the extreme harsh vacuum of space with one other person, it certainly gets your attention. The first spacewalk, you're <laughs> looking over your shoulder and you see this incredibly overwhelming image of the planet a couple hundred miles away and you're you know it it does get your attention you're scared quite frankly and then the second spacewalk you're a little bit more relaxed and you have a chance to enjoy the view a little bit more and then of course by the time you're doing your third spacewalk oh this is old hat and you lock your tether on a handrail and you push away from the space station you're floating freely in space still tethered of course that's very important but uh, able to look at the earth from such a unique perspective it's absolutely incredible. So uh, I think it was after the uh, end of your first mission, uh, your your wife, Kathy, asked you if you'll be okay coming back home and sort of, you know, I'm, I'm putting words in her mouth, but something to the extent of, you know, are you now forever going to be wishing you were back in space? And you had a different answer than I expected to hear. <laughs> yeah, you know, being in space is is truly incredible. But for me, and and I do understand that for different people, um, different things become important. But for me, getting back to Earth was was also an amazing experience because I got a, a chance to be back with my my wife and our kids and be able to spend time together. And uh, I've been very very fortunate in my career to have had a number of very unique life experiences, both in space and underwater, where I'm working with other crew members who essentially become like my family. And when you do these sorts of things. It's an amazing experience bonding with uh, the whole team of people that you're doing it. But then also to be able to celebrate that with my own family. So, you know, yes, I miss space and I miss what it's like being in space and exploring space and things. But I cherish being back on Earth and being able to explore our own planet with my fam friends and family. So what led you to then go on and now uh, become a CEO of a hospital? That seems like, again, a whole other career shift because you know, you're not you're you're you know, you're not seeing patients the way I assume that you were before you became an astronaut. Yeah, so it's a totally different experience. You know, between my first and my second space flight, I had a chance to be part of the senior management team at NASA. And it was really that experience that uh, in leading a large organization that got me ready to leading a hospital as a CEO. So after my second space flight, I knew I was going to retire. It was 54. I was 54 at the time. And uh, I figured uh, at this point I had two space flights, two underwater missions, and maybe time for me to retire and open the door for a couple of other Canadians to be hired. And we hired David Saint-Jacques and Jeremy Hansen uh, shortly after I retired. But I came back to Canada and um, I was working at McMaster University in Hamilton and at St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton. I was the chief medical officer 
officer for safety and quality, kind of bringing those aerospace safety quality lessons that we'd learned in the space program into healthcare. And the phone rang and uh, it was a, a search firm and they were looking for a CEO for South Lake Regional Health Center. And I thought that'd be a lot of fun because one of the things I was very passionate about is seeing if we can incorporate all of the principles of peak team performance and high reliability organizations, how we achieve the incredible things we do in the space program and bring that into healthcare. So I joined the team at Southlake in 2011, was there for six years and had a remarkable journey with an incredible team of 4,500 people dedicated to creating the ultimate patient experience. And now we're sort of at a moment where it seems like, well, at least here in the U.S., it seems that with every change in administration, what NASA is focused on changes as well. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, what it's like to be part of the Canadian Space Agency, how that differs sort of from um, NASA, since I, 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 I mean, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it doesn't seem to have as much turnover at the top with every new, um, you know, political change. You know, it's interesting. I've worked in the U.S. government as a senior civil servant. I've worked in the Canadian government. I've been a hospital CEO and had a chance to do a lot of work uh, with uh, corporations in the private sector. doesn't really matter where you are and what you're doing. The challenges are the same. And uh, it's very interesting. Every organization, government, non-government included, has to deal with change that is essentially uh, increasing uh, over the most recent few years and uh, will certainly increase in the future. The rate of change, the challenges that senior leaders face in organizations, being able to work with large teams, thinking about things like corporate agility and the ability to go from one direction to another direction. These are all things that I think are really important. And yet, if you look at the lessons learned from the senior management team at NASA from the 60s through until now, it's been a remarkable journey. And, you know, next year we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo, the incredible flight directors and team and mission control and the astronauts that enabled us to go to the moon and come back safely, the lessons that they learned in space exploration we've documented, but the lessons that they learned on how to work together as a team and be able to make the impossible possible are equally important. And those are the ones that I'm passionate about sharing with organizations. What do you think should be, uh, or, or do you think will be the goals of the organizations moving forward? So I think, you know, whether you're in the private sector or in the government sector right now, being able to adapt to change, uh, change is something that many people say, oh, yes, I willingly embrace. But in fact, from an organizational perspective, often there's what we would call a degree of organizational inertia. So it's figuring out how we can work together to embrace innovation, to do things that will improve whatever it is that we're striving to do. So at Southlake Regional Health Center, our goal was to deliver the ultimate patient experience, something that I understood personally when I I became a patient at age 50, but uh, that was a journey that we were able to achieve because it galvanized everyone, and uh, we focused on creating a culture in which everyone in the organization embraced the culture to enhance the outcomes for patients that we were caring for. So over the next couple of weeks, uh, a lot of families are going to get together, and they're going to be sort of evaluating how the kids are doing, and their kids are going to be um, looking at their you know, family members for support. What would you tell a child and or uh, their parents who said, hey, you know, I want to be an astronaut? Um, are there any kind of do's and don'ts that you would, you would recommend that, that families have when encouraging such a child and for the child themselves to sort of, you know, what, what should they do? 
So, you know, whether it's becoming an astronaut or whether it's achieving some other goal, I think it starts with passion. And in fact, when I look to hire people and bring them into an organization, one of the key things that I look for is passion in an individual. And I would encourage both uh, students and parents to be able to embrace that passion and to go forward on a journey and recognize that the journey is not going to be straightforward. There's going to be ups and downs and twists and turns, and you have to learn how to adapt to whatever comes across your path, to be resilient for those moments when it seems impossible to be able to achieve those dreams. There will be tough times, and having friends and family there to support you during those tough times is so critical and to be able to cherish the moments it's about the journey it's not about the destination and some people may decide that they want to become an astronaut and not become an astronaut but it's the journey of trying to become an astronaut that's equally important and that's something that's really very exciting and they may find that journey takes them in a totally different direction i've talked to people who said they wanted to become an astronaut and they chose to become a research scientist uh, to be able to become an astronaut but lo and behold, they enjoyed doing that so much that they never actually ended up flying in space. And that's totally fine with them because they got an incredible career in research or might be in engineering, might be in medicine. Well, if any of our listeners know uh, a person who has dreams of becoming an astronaut or uh, of just learning how to follow their dreams, I highly recommend uh, Dave Williams' book, uh, Defying Limits, Lessons from the Edge of the Universe. It's available at booksellers everywhere and I'm sure can still be shipped in time for Christmas. Dave Williams, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks so much and have a very, very happy holiday season. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our new Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rihalla, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis, and I hope you all have a really happy holiday. See you next week. Ever wonder what your life would be like if you took a different path? Are you doing today what you envisioned you'd be doing 10 years ago? This holiday season, GH Mum Champagne has partnered with Vice to bring you personal stories of courage, belief in your dreams, and the determination to make those dreams a reality. So pop open a bottle of GH Mum Grand Cordon, get inspired, and celebrate your next victory. Visit ghmumvictory.com. That's G-H-M-U-M-M-V-I-C-T-O-R-Y.com to see all 10 stories. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.